Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1,362. I guess if there was ever a book written about my life, I guess it would be just a short and sweet for the wheels fall off. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. What's the worst thing for your car's interior? No, it's not that milkshake the kids spilled in the back seat. It's the sun. Harmful UV rays cook your automobile's interior hour after hour when it's parked outside, even on a cloudy day. What's the solution? Covercraft sunscreens. They protect your dash, seats, and interior finishes from those damaging UV rays while keeping the interior temperature tolerable even on the hottest summer days. No more painfully sizzling seats and steering wheels for you. They unfold quickly and easily install, stay where you put them, and are custom pattern for an exact fit. The foam core acts as a cooling insulator, and you can get yours in different colors and finishes. And they even fold up easily and store under your seat or on the floor. I've used Covercraft sunscreens for years and they are a fast and easy solution that protect my beloved cars when they're not in the garage. Learn more and order yours at Covercraft.com. Want to protect your entire vehicle? Get a car cover from Covercraft. They have those too. That's Covercraft.com. And tell them Mark sent you. Hello, automotive and bike enthusiasts. I'm revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest calling in from Los Angeles, California, Tim Medvitz. Hey, Tim, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Ready for a ride. All right. You're always ready for a ride. Tim Medvitz is the founder of The Heroes Project, a foundation that makes the impossible a reality by empowering our injured veterans through physical and emotional training. He and his team organize expeditions to challenge vets who have been severely wounded to redefine their personal limits post-injury. Tim is a custom motorcycle builder and rider who built bikes for the Hollywood elite, He's a lifelong wanderer, a nomad, a natural extreme athlete who rode his chopper around the country numerous times. He was a member of the notorious Hells Angels Motorcycle Club and traveled all over the world. His adventures have taken him to Mount Everest, which he has summited, and he's one of those uh, treks, it's one of those treks, I should say, that inspired Tim to take wounded veteran to Everest and start the Heroes Project, a foundation dedicated to raising funds to help the more severely injured women and men and women that serve our country. Tim, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. Would you take a brief moment, share a little bit more about your life, your passion for bikes, and definitely a passion for adventure before I jump into the questions? Sure. Thanks for having me for starters, Mark. I appreciate You're it. You're welcome. And I appreciate you, you reaching out. Uh, it's definitely not one of the normal calls that I get from a, a car co- podcast. So uh, I'm a little more excited about this one. Not that I'm a huge car guy, but uh, it's got a motor and it's got rubber. I'm into it. So uh, a little bit about me. I'm from the great state of New Jersey and uh, moved out to California, packed up the bike, packed up the old lady and headed out out west and decided to figure we had enough money to last us about six months out here in L.A. And then we were going back home because I was never going to leave jersey and uh that was about 20 years ago so (laughs) (laughs) things change don't uh, things change you know if you're a a motorcycle enthusiast you're a car enthusiast 
you like mountains, you like hunting, you like fishing. I mean, it's pretty much just got it all. Um, and so uh, here I am. I'm still out here and uh, based right out of Hollywood, California. Uh, got a little nonprofit foundation. Our training grounds are all here uh, just outside of Los Angeles. A lot of people don't realize that, uh, you know, and they say, wow, I mean, you live in, in Hollywood. Like, how do you train for, you know, mountains like the size of Everest and uh, that magnitude. And I'm like, well, a lot of people don't realize that we have actually about three mountains that are all above 10,000 feet that are within an hour drive of, of Hollywood. So, you know, the old saying, right, I could be uh, up in the mountains skiing in the morning and I could be having a beer at sunset, my feet in the sand on the beach in the afternoon. And it's actually true. So which would keep which keeps me here. And uh, that's about it. What else you want to know about me? Well, we're going to learn a lot about you. Yeah, the beautiful Sierra Nevadas. I spent a lot of time skiing up in Mammoth Mountain uh, when I was a kid. A great place to go ski. Big Bear, of course, which is a little closer. I grew up in San Diego. But as we continue on your journey, Tim, I first want to ask you for a success quote or a mantra. This is some kind of saying that's been a bit instrumental in forming your life, and it's a nice way to get the inspirational tires, in your case, smoking here on Cars. Yeah, so Tim, grab the handlebars and go. I mean, I don't know. Let's see. Inspirational quote or mantra. I guess uh, I guess if there was ever a book written about my life, I guess it would be just a short and sweet for the wheels fall off. And <laughs> <laughs> you know, simple. And uh, it's funny working with a lot of um, injured veterans who their wheels actually did fall off. Yeah. Literally. <laughs> uh, yeah. Literally. Lost limbs. And yet they keep plugging away. And so different set of wheels and yeah, I mean, my life is, uh, you know, it's taken all kinds of twists and turns and, you know, I mean, my whole body's patched up with metal and pins and bolts and fusions. And and so for me, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, until the wheels fall off, right? Well, you know, I have a feeling your life isn't so short and sweet from all the adventures you've been through, but I understand what you're saying. And we're going to touch on that because you had a horrific motorcycle accident that, in an f- interesting way through that recovery and that challenge led to some things. And I'm going to touch on that in a minute. But first, I want to go back a little further in time because you're an adventurer. You're a bike guy. You've always been a bike guy. You told me when we talked on the phone the other day, you ride a bike every day. So I want you to go back and tell us a story that instigated that passion you have for riding, for motorcycles, and a pivotal moment in your life when you knew that you were indeed going to be a bike guy. I mean, you know, I can the old cliche story, uh, you know, I used to sit on my dad's chopper, you know, and he was a kid and, you know, I got this picture of me on a bike and it's actually fairly true. My mom actually has a photo of, of me when I was about five or six years old and I was on a little push motorcycle and it was the middle of summer in New Jersey and I had a wool hat on. I had wool mittens and I said to my mom, I said, what? I said, why it looks like it's like summer like you guys are in the pool in the background why am i wearing a wool hat and mittens he goes because every time you got on that little motorcycle i had to go inside and i had to get you your helmet and your gloves (laughs) so you know you know when you live in new jersey and you live on the east coast we have the seasons which we don't have out here and so mom had you know the winter box of clothes and you know the summer box of clothes and the fall box of clothes and the spring box to go into the garage and dig out the winter box just so I would have my motorcycle helmet and my and my gloves. You had so, your gear on. Yeah, there was. I mean, there was that that which I don't really remember that one too well. I mean, the pictures there, but I think the, the pivotal moment was 
about three doors up my my street that I lived on. You could write a book about my street. Uh, it was called Dewey Ave, a little town called Colonia, New Jersey. And uh, me and my buddies, we all had a little bike. You know, we all had our mongooses and our little BMX bikes. And we called ourselves the Dewey Crew, you know. And <laughs> cool. We used to fight the kids in the other neighborhoods. And But when we were really little, you know, seven, eight, nine, whatever, there was uh, our block. All of our neighbors were uncles and aunts. You know, we always played in everybody's yard and we had block parties and everybody knew everybody. And it was just like the greatest block, the greatest neighborhood to grow up in. But about three doors up was an Irish family. And those guys would just, you know, drink all night long in the backyard parties. And uh, the one of his sons, Mr. Silence, Uncle Bob, he had... A son and his son was, you know, motorcycle enthusiast. And so all his buddies, they weren't in a bike club or nothing. Uh, but there was about, he had probably every one of his buddies had Harleys. And these guys would pull up and there would just be line, like a lineup of like a dozen, 20 Harleys. And they would drink till the sun came up. And you always knew when they left because it was about two, three in the morning. Everybody, the whole neighborhood would get woken up. But I remember this one guy, he had this one bike, this chopper, and it was this blue hardtail and it was just like i remember sitting on the curb just staring at this bike as a kid and he'd get on it and you know and he'd crank her up and i just thought that was i remember that so vividly as a child like seeing that bike and just being enamored by all those bikes that were parked and i I used to get real excited when they wake me up in the middle of the night, you know, and I <laughs> run, to the, run, I run to the window, yeah, yeah. the window <laughs> and seeing them taking off, you know, and it was just, you know, but, um, so I guess your, to answer your question, that would probably be my fondest memory as a kid. And then of course, stealing the neighbor's Briggs and Stratton motor at the lawnmower and then finding a frame and tires for a little mini bike and then putting that thing together with my buddies and starting off with the mini bike. And then, you know, one of us got a YZ80 Yamaha dirt bike and then finally convinced my dad to get me a KX125 Kawasaki. And and so that was kind of like the introduction to bikes. You know, it was just, it was always my thing. Yeah, um, and it always office, has been. Yeah, and then in New Jersey, when we were 15 years old, we were allowed to get a moped license. So you didn't get your driver's license until you were 17. But at 15, you would get a moped license. Yeah. It allowed you to ride this moped that can only do like, you know, whatever, 35 miles an hour. And I had a Peugeot moped, which was great because, you know, now you can go to all the other towns and, you know, you have a whole new set of friends that you never got. And then, of course, that moped turned into my dirt bike, which, you know, riding that through all the trails. And and that was like, that was... That was cool because it was a whole other world because the dirt bike thing, you're only allowed to ride in the dirt. and Kind of limiting. You're limiting. But when you get onto a bike, then, you know, a moped, you have to abide by all the laws and turn signals. And and then you're, like, really thrown out there, thrown into the wolf, into the lion's den. So that was kind of my introduction at an early age to, you know, being the a motorcyclist. Yeah. Very cool. Well, we're going to fast forward here. I always ask my guess about a big challenge in life. And I know that you had a horrific motorcycle accident. You alluded uh, earlier to pins and cages and your body is full of metal. You must be a mess when you go through the airport security system. Uh, but you had a really tough recovery from what I understand. You, you got into some really self-destructive behavior and 
My understanding was that you read John Kerouac's book, Into Thin Air, and that gave you inspiration to change your life and go climb Everest, not only once, but twice. You summited Everest, which I got to see on that wonderful documentary that I've been watching uh, with my wife on the Discovery Channel, Everest and Beyond. I want you to walk us through that challenging time in your life, kind of how difficult it was, and then how you came out of it in a positive way, because it was that that, in a weird way, led to the Heroes Project, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Yeah, so kind of take us through that. I know it's a tough time, but kind of walk us through that and, and, and take us down that ugly road, but then bring us into the light, like getting onto the, the top of that mountain and how that changed your life. Yeah, I mean, the, it's kind of hard to give you the short version on that one. Um, but essentially, you know, moved out to California, 1998, it was El Nino at the time. And yeah. if anybody, any of your listeners are from Southern California, they'll they were here in 98, they'll remember that real fully because it literally rained every day for like about two months. And not, I was not a lot like with the season that we had this year in yeah, California, a lot I mean, of rain, right? It was, I mean, I'll never forget that. You know, and I'm, I'm a kid from Jersey, you know, so when you think of California, you think there's like, you know, hot blonde chicks and thongs, like rollerblading down the streets of all hours of the day, <laughs> you know. Hey, and, don't destroy the image for everybody. Yeah, okay, and then, Tim? You know, like, you know, and Van Halen's playing in the background. I wish they all could be California. <laughs> to California girls. And oh, then yeah. I get out here and it's me and, you know, my girl and uh, we're shacked up in this little hooker motel up on Sunset because that's all we could afford. And it's raining every day, and it's just, you know, and there's... Welcome to California. Oh, my God. It was just like a hellhole, man. <laughs> I was like, and then, of course, you know, boom, the weather broke, and then got an apartment. And at the time, I was in the Motor Show Club, you know, I was in the Hells Angels. And then uh, fast forward three years of living out in Cali, and everything, life's good, and the rain stopped, and... You know, going up to Big Sur and the Sierras and all these like bitching rides in the Bay Area and just like loving everything California's got to offer and life is good. And I'm traveling around the world with the club and I got all these brothers that would do anything for me and I do anything for them. And um, the dream, man, like it's great. I'm building motorcycles and I'm selling by building bikes for, you know, Keanu Reeves and, you know, Red Hot Chili Pepper guys and Steven Tyler's and Cher and like all these like movie stars, John Travolta. And, and I'm, you know, working in a T-shirt and jeans. I'm making about 150000 a year and everything's good. Everything's smooth rolling, smooth sailing. And then um, riding through the valley and racing down this street. And it was kind of a good street to kind of open up the throttle a little bit because there was no side streets, no driveways just like apartment complex with two lanes going south, two lanes going north, double solid down the middle. And, and I'm just ripping it, you know, and opened her up, probably doing, pushing about 90. It's probably a 45 speed limit. And then uh, all of a sudden, I uh, didn't really factor in that someone parked on the side of the road was going to chalk the wheels to the left and make a UE so they didn't have to go around the block, cross over two lanes, cross over the double solid middle to head back to the freeway because it was shorter than going around. And so I'm in the left lane. I'm just punching close to 100. And all of a sudden, this car just, like, pulls out U-turn. And I didn't even panic at first. I just swung over to the right lane. I was going to swing behind them and then flip them the bird. And, and then all of a sudden, as soon as I got to the right lane, they seen me and slammed on the brake. They froze. And then I had nowhere to go. It was, like, either... Either I T-bone the truck and launch or I throw the bike down and 
and pray. And so that's what I did. I hit the rear brake. I threw the bike down and smashed into it. And I don't remember the actual impact. I don't remember launching in the air, but I do remember waking up. And I remember seeing my bike laying in the middle of the road. And my first reaction was like, oh, man, like my bike's in the middle of the road. Someone's going to run my bike over. I got I to gotta get my bike. And then not realizing that I'm laying in the middle of the road. And so go to get up. And I can't feel anything from my waist down, completely paralyzed. And the shock, the shock hits me like, oh, shit. And then I look to my left and my foot, my left foot is literally by my ear. And like literally like maybe a foot from my ear. So I get on the phone. I call one of the brothers from the club and I'm like, hey, man, like, man, I, I messed up, man. You got to come get me. I'm laying in the middle of the road. My bike's in the middle of the road. And he was like, I don't know. He said something funny like, you know, I'm watching the game. You know, leave me alone. I was like, no, man, like, I'm really here. You got to come get me. And uh, he's like, all right, where are you at? And then next thing you know, like, you know, fire department, the police, and ambulances. And it was like, I really didn't really realize the extent of what happened. And that was about probably about 730 at night. And so, you know, the cops came and the fire department, and they scraped me off the ground and got me to the hospital. And I remember in the emergency room, and at this point, I had like six of my brothers from the club with me and they're all like my size so over six feet and 200 some pounds yeah and i remember the doctor like i remember the doctor kind of like trying to explain to me like what the extent of my injuries are and he didn't really know the extent all of it because i haven't been x-rayed and got scanned at this point but he knew that you know my back was probably broken and my knee was completely smashed it was you know broken half my hand, my head, blood, my, and then my foot was like mangled, barely hanging on. And I just remember him saying like, well, you know, you're gonna, we're going to patch you up. We're going to get you all good. And you're going to make it through this, but I, I don't know if your foot's going to make it through it. And I'm like, huh, what? And he's like, well, we might have to lose your foot. And I, it wasn't, I was still in shock, but then wasn't really calculating what he meant by losing my foot. And I'm like, well, I meant to amputate. I said, amputate what? What do you mean? He's like, well, we might have to cut your foot off. I'm like, for what? Why? He's like, there's really nothing left. It's barely hanging on. And then I just, like, it kind of hit me, like, reality of I might wake up and not have a foot. And I remember just, like, lashing out at him. Like, I wake up tomorrow morning. I better have a foot or I'm going to kill you. That foot better be there when I wake up in the morning. And then there's, like, you know, six guys in the emergency room going, yeah, doc, you know, just save the foot, you know. And he's just sitting there, like, you know, you can see yeah, he was like kind of shitting his pants, like, oh, I'll do the best I can. And then next thing you know, boom, the drugs hit me and out cold. And then fast forward, I wake up in the morning and I open my eyes and I look around and I'm like, okay, I'm alive. Check. Uh, I'm in a hospital. Check. And also, I remember the last thing was my foot. I look down almost immediately and I see my toes. And I'm like, oh, God, thank God. Okay, I got my foot. Check. And then I realized that there's all of these doctors and nurses in the room. There must have been about a dozen of them in there. Like, the whole room is just filled with doctors and nurses. And everybody's staring up towards the ceiling. And I'm trying to get everybody's attention. Like, I'm up. Hello, hello. But I can't because this machine is breathing for me. So I'm on, like, a life support machine of... Iron lung, whatever you want to call it. And then, uh, so I couldn't say anything. So I'm trying to, like, I couldn't wave my hand because everything's all, I'm 
you know, I'm casted and bolted and chained up basically. And then all of a sudden I'm like, what the hell is everybody looking at? And as I turn and like kind of move my head up, I notice they're looking at the television. And just as I scan my head up, all of a sudden I look up and the Twin Towers are literally crumbling down at about 930 in the morning. That was 9-11? I crashed on September 10th at 730 at night. Oh, my gosh. And the next morning, I woke up in ICU, and all these doctors and nurses were watching this, like, tragedy that was wow. unfolding. Oh, my gosh. People say to you, you know, like, well, do you remember where you were? You know, it's a real easy one for me. But, yeah, I remember where I was. Yeah, yeah. I, but I, re- I, I do remember, and this is terrible, you know. Everybody's going to hear this in trends, what I'm about to say, is that, you know, my first reaction was, like, you know, like, uh, not realizing the extent the severity of, of that. Severity yeah. of what was going on. I was just like kind of in shock. And then obviously yeah. how that well, was going to Well, a little bit self, self-focused yeah, at that time. Yeah, sure. And then obviously, you know, as the day went on, you know, and then realizing the extent of what happened. Yeah. Wow. Change. And so that, that's what started that. And then um, let me speed up to, you know, finally got out of the hospital about you know, probably four, almost, almost five months later. I was in a wheelchair for about almost six months. And then I went from the wheelchair to the little walker thing, you know, with the tennis balls on the bottom. <laughs> oh, yeah. cool about that at all. Uh, no, I'm trying uh, to imagine that you with that. That doesn't doesn't fit with your persona, dude. Matter, you know, you put any hot rod stickers on it, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, some flames out the back. You can't turbocharge those little balls. Nothing you can do about that walker. There's nothing cool about it. And then I graduated from that to the crutches. And then once I got to the crutches... I was like, hmm, you know, I could probably get on that motorcycle if I could figure out what to do with these crutches. And now I got my legs in a cast, foots in a cast. I got to wear this Teenage Ninja turtle shell from my neck to my waist. Uh, that was like 24-7 for four months. I had to wear that thing because I just I broke my back in like six places and it's been bolted oh my gosh. caged around it. And so I figured out a way. I went to my buddy's shop and I get there and I'm like, look, I got to be able to ride this bike. I got to get back on my bike. It's been six months now. I'm going crazy. I need my life back. I said, he's like, all right, so how are we going to do this? I said, well, my first problem is I got the cast on my foot, so I can't kick the kickstand out. So we got to weld an extension bar on it so I can just reach down with my hand and pull the kickstand out of my hand. He's like, all right, check. We can do that. All right. Then I need a toe heel shifter because I can just push down with the cast and shift from first to second. The toe heel shifter, you push down on to go one down and then the rest are, you know, five up. So you would just push the rear shifter down and that would get you in the gear. So I'm like, OK, that's great. I can say, All right, we can do that. No problem. And then my third problem was how what do I do with the crutches? There's nowhere to put crutches on this, you know. This chopper of mine. I'm like, all right, well, what if I can learn how to just walk with one crutch? Then we only got to figure out somewhere to put one crutch. So that's all I did for like the next two weeks was just practice and practice and practice, trying to hobble around the house with one crutch. And finally, I got it down where I can do it. And I hobbled down to the garage. At this point, he put the toe heel shifter on. He put the extension to the, to the kickstand. And then I get on the bike and I take the crutch and I put it in between my crotch and I stick the end of the crutch crossed over the handlebar sticking out. So it looked like, like a joust. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 
I'm like, okay, I could do this. So yeah, this is a good idea. I bike up and I pull out of the garage. The neighbors are giving me that look like, what an idiot. You know? Yeah, here he goes again. And I got the turtle shell on. So you can imagine this visual, you know, I have a photo. I'll send it to you. Anyway, um, so now I'm driving down the street. Things are okay. You know, I pull up to a light, put the foot down. Okay, I got the cast. Not big deal. No, no big deal. And then I pull onto the freeway and things are going good. 30 miles an hour, 40 miles an hour, 50. As soon as I hit 60, that wind hits the front of that crutch and boom, throws the crutch in the air. <laughs> yeah, I see that coming. Behind me. So now I had to manage to like turn around, go back to get this crutch because I'm kind of stranded on an island once I come to a stop. I can't get off the bike without my crutch, my lifeline. So I finally, I drive back against traffic, get the crutch, pick it up, put it on, get off the next exit, go back home. Now I got to reassess this thing. All right, how am I going to do this? And then I figured if I put a little tiny bungee cord that went across the risers on the handlebars and I could just bungee the top of that when I hit high speeds, it wouldn't flip back. And that's what I did. And so I Tim, 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 what are we gonna do with you? Oh, look, it's like, you know, you're you're a car guy, man. You gotta get in your car, you gotta drive. It's like you know, Nicky Lauda pulling his helmet on over his burned off ear yeah, to get back in an F one car. Speaking of, you know, the guys that I work with now, the injured vets that are missing limbs. Yeah. You know, their car is modified. They have, you know, the brake and the throttle is all on the on the steering wheel and Right. So it's just one of those things like going back to you want an inspirational quote. It's right. It's like, you know, you figure out a way. There's always a way. Anything in life is, is possible. The difference is between some people and other people is that some people want it more. And I wanted everything and anything. I would do anything to get back on that motorcycle to feel like a man again. You know, and at this point in my life, you know, I had to have, you know, you know, and that stuff's like demeaning, man. Like you lose your manhood. And then uh, I just needed to feel like a man again. And so getting on the bike kind of filled that space for a little bit. And it just, as I kept getting, it was very painful to do this stuff. And so then I had to numb the pain. And that's where, you know, the Vicodins started going from like two a day to 15 a day, you know, and the drugs and just everything to like numb the pain. And that was about a good. Then I decided I had to you know, go on a motorcycle trip across country. And so I just basically went to like every Hells Angel charter across America and uh, just to feel like it's me again. Sure. You know, being on a bike for, you know, eight, 10 hours every day with all those injuries, you just kind of how you did it. Yeah. Did it with power of pharmaceuticals, right? <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. It's not, not a, it's not a great thing to do, but I just, no. I went to this self destructive phase. You know, just to numb the pain, to feel like a man again. And then after about a year of that, it was just like, you know, I was like in this crossroads. And it was like, I finally got back home to L.A. And like, all right, what's next? The bike shop was like, you coming back, you know, and like collect disability. Like, what do I do? And then all of a sudden, it was just like that light coming through the window. And it was shining on this book in different air. And my uh, next old lady of mine gave it to me, and she was just said, "Read this book." You know, I never did. I just threw it on the bookshelf, and, and so it was just one of those moments. High as a kite, half a bottle of whiskey in me, and grabbed the book and started reading it. And I was just obsessed with this book. And I think I stayed up till about six in the morning, and it had this map of the route climbing the mountain. And I remember every time I'd read something like, "Oh, we just you know got to camp two, and I 
go all the way back to the front of the book and look at the map. Okay, that's where they're at now. I'm just obsessed with the book. And then I finished reading it, and that was it. I was like, okay, I'm done. This is, this is it. I'm going to take this into my own hands, and I'm going to go rehab myself and climb mountains. Because at this point, you know, I did dabble in a little bit of the physical therapy, but it was probably about maybe one or two days of that when I walked in. It was just a bunch of, you know, old people squeezing a ball and, you know, people babying all these grown-ups, and that just wasn't for me. And so I needed a little extreme therapy. And so that was it, man. I uh, put the book down, got some sleep, knocked on the neighbor's door, said I'm subletting my place, bought an open-end ticket, and uh, 30 days later, put everything, stuffed everything in the garage, and took off to Nepal and lived uh, in the Himalayas for a year, completely off the grid, no Wi-Fi, no cell phone service, threw the pills down the toilet, threw the booze away, and that was it. And that began journey and then you know three years later sold all the motorcycles maxed out the credit cards and seventy thousand dollars go to climb everest and then i uh, get my first shot at everest and then it was kind of a fluke the you know the show that you watched on discovery was a complete fluke because i was kicked off another team because i didn't have the rest of the money because i was selling my truck i had a 1997 f-350 ford crew cab power stroke diesel and I was, my buddy was going to buy it from me. I mean, I literally liquidated everything to climb this mountain. And uh, he didn't give me the money until, like, you know, right before I was leaving. And so the other team kicked me off the team. I didn't give him the rest of the money. And then I showed up to Kathmandu with this sack full of cash. And then uh, I found a team that had an opening. And this guy, Russell, who I met in a bar two years prior to that when I went to Nepal to recover, rehabilitate myself. I met him in a bar. And uh, he's, I said, yeah, I'm going to climb Everest one day, you know, and he's this legendary Everest climber, gave me his card. And yeah, right. Sure. I hear that from everybody. And off I reached out to him and he's like, yeah, I got an opening on the team. Gave him a sack full of money. And that's when he dropped this whole, oh, by the way, there's going to be this production crew filming. And I didn't know nothing about that stuff. I live in Hollywood, but I'm actually kind of famous out here. I still say my claim to fame living in Hollywood is I'm the only one who lives in Hollywood without a headshot and an agent. <laughs> I know your helper, Christine, I had to pull some photos out of her to, to get for your show notes page. So, uh, yeah. wow. You know, this adventure is incredible. And uh, here's what I'm going to do with you here, Tim. I want to keep you on the line. Usually my shows are about a half hour long. We've been into this for about a half hour. I'm going to make your show into a two part show. If you'll let me. Because I want to continue and talk a lot about Heroes Project and a few more things. So what I want to do here for our listeners is we're going to, uh, we're going to talk just briefly about Heroes Project, how this led into that. And then we're going to sign off and we're going to come back tomorrow and we're going to do a second part for this show. We're going to get more into the Heroes Project. Are you up for that? Sure. I'd like sure. to do that. We okay. Leave, great. We can leave it off with, uh, Three years after my accident, I stood on top of the world, man. Summited Mount Everest on May 21st, 2007. That's a pretty darn cool place to leave it off. And, uh, so, uh, yeah. Then you, yeah. Up, then you come off Everest, and the first question all your buddies say is, what's next, man? You just climbed Everest. What's next? <laughs> what's next? That'll lead us into the Heroes Project. So, you listeners, you come back tomorrow, and you're going to learn a lot more about this very adventurous guy named Tim and the Heroes Project. So, thank you for listening today. 
When you want proven performance, there's one brand that's been around since 1938. That's Edelbrock, building the finest American-made performance products for the street and track. Edelbrock's products are designed and dyno-proven to deliver maximum results. Edelbrock has thousands of made-in-the-USA performance products for all makes and models. From their new ADS-2 carburetor and innovative ProFlow 4 EFI for your muscle car or truck. To superchargers for your daily driver and more, visit edelbrock.com. To check out the latest products for your ride, and when you're ready to check out, enter cars yeah in the coupon code and get 10% off your order. That's Edelbrock, automotive performance since 1938. You take care of your cars, but who takes care of your investments? Tune-ups aren't just for engines. Updating your financial plan is important, too. Your GPS may take you from A to B, but it won't help you on the road to financial freedom. For that, you need a good co-pilot and a very trusted advisor. Chris Kimball, CFP, is just the man for the job. He'll guide you down that road without driving you crazy. For over 25 years, Chris has helped people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. With a master's degree in financial services, he is eminently qualified, and he's a car guy too. Learn more at chrisvkimble.com or call 866-ON-A-PLAN. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member FINRA SIPC. CK Financial Services is not affiliated with Money Concepts Capital Corp. Are you looking for a way to get your products or services into the ears of thousands of automotive enthusiasts around the globe? I can help. This is Mark Green here at Cars Yeah, and I'd be honored to be an influencer and ambassador for your brand in a unique and personal way. Five days a week, thousands of subscribers and listeners enjoy the Cars Yeah podcast and website. Contact me today and I'll show you how at mark at com or connect with me through the Cars Yeah website at carsyeah.com. Hey, Mark Green here from Cars Yeah. Did you know you can now see me on the Cars Yeah TV show? It's a weekly visit to some of my past Cars Yeah podcast guests, and I take you along for the ride. You go behind the garage door and into their lives, their businesses, and you get to see what makes them successful. With tens of millions of viewers, Cars Yeah TV is making its mark. Cars Yeah TV is available on MAV TV and Lucas Oil Racing TV. You'll find MAV TV on Direct TV, Fubo TV, Fios by Verizon, or you can stream it through Lucas Oil Racing Television online. And they said I only had a face for podcasting. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!